All right, we're now ready to move into our final segment of the day. We um, have in recent years, as I've alluded to earlier, uh, concluded this leadership conference with some form of economic outlook. And we're excited this year to welcome back uh, one of our previous presenters, Mark Bittner, Managing Director and Senior Economist at Wells Fargo. To introduce Mark, I want to uh, have you join me in welcoming NCEDA board member Jim Spicer, CIO of Corporate Technology and Data at Wells Fargo, uh, which is sponsoring this segment. So, Jim, welcome. Thank you, Brooke. Uh, Wells Fargo is pleased to be a part of this conference again this year and to have a chance to close out the agenda with an economic overview by one of our, our national stars. Um, before I introduce uh, Mark, just let me share a few words about Wells Fargo. As the nation's fourth largest financial institution, our goal is to satisfy all of our customers' Um, needs and to help them to succeed financially. We're thrilled to continue our partnership with the NCEDA, given our joint commitment to technology and to the North Carolina community. Although our business is in financial services, technology is an essential component of how we deliver an outstanding experience for our 70 million customers. We're also committed to North Carolina, as Charlotte is our East Coast headquarters, and we have over 3,300 technology team members within the state. Now it's my pleasure to introduce my colleague, Mark Bittner, Managing Director and Senior Economist at Wells Fargo. Mark is widely quoted and well-regarded across the country and will surely give us some um, insights and food for thought as we close out today's conference. His bio is in your digital program, so please welcome Mark back to NCEDA. Right. Well, it's good to be back. You know, I, I don't know how many times I've spoken to NCEDA, but, but I, uh, I remember way back, and maybe 20 years ago. I don't know if you guys have been on 20. I've, I've, seen it, I've seen it in fancy places, and I've seen it in not-so-fancy places. I think the uh, first time I spoke, I think we were in, the, in, in Research Triangle Park, but, but in some uh, converted warehouse or something. But anyway... Times are better. We're at Grandover. It's a good place to be. Um, if um, if you were out on the golf course, it'd be much better. It's about 80 degrees outside and breezy and no humidity, which I wish that uh, I wish that those kind of conditions were in the economy. You know, it's like um, it's uh, it's funny. On the way up here, I, I I I've been in North Carolina forever. I know my way around town, and uh, I'm driving up here and. Uh, and I come across this motorcycle pulling a casket down the highway. I've never seen it. And I, and I made a movie of it. I mean, if you go to my Facebook page tonight, you can see it. I mean, I've already, I did that while I was driving, too. That's why I missed the turn and had to make a U-turn around where the Lowe's is. But um, in any event, uh, our mind has been focused on events overseas. And uh, we actually put out a report this morning. It's titled, uh, economic growth appears to be lost in a fog of uncertainty, and uh, it, uh, it it just hit the wire probably an hour ago. And um, and and in that, we talk a lot about how uh, there there just seems to be so much uncertainty present in the U.S. and the global economies. A lot of that has to do with Europe. And when I when I tell tell people about Europe, I said you know I always say well. You want me to tell you the truth? I mean, you know, you, you really want to hear the truth? I mean, most people don't. I mean, they, they really don't want to hear it because it's not very good. But I said the truth is it's very hard to see how the euro currency is ever going to work. From a fundamental standpoint, it's got to be one of the stupidest things that has ever been perpetuated by mankind. And um, But the Europeans did it, so it's understandable. But, you know, it's like... Um, I, mean, I was talking to a guy from, from, from Ireland this morning, and he was like, he said that, um, he, said, he said, you know, do you really think that we're going to be able to have a fiscal union? Did you watch the Irish versus the Irish-Spanish soccer game yesterday? Now, he was on the losing end. And I said, oh, you mean the bailout bowl? I said, you know, that's, that's, what, they, that's what it was called in the Wall Street Journal, was the bailout bowl. And, I'm, you know, it's like we're, we're, we're getting people about bailouts. But, um, but um, the problems in Europe, 
we, we've been bumbling from bailout to bailout to bailout. And I describe it, I says, there's a man that's been shot. And the powers that be are sitting there trying to help the guy, but they're arguing over what color Band-Aid to put on them. And uh, they're not doing anything to fundamentally fix the problem. And, and if you don't address the fundamental issues that got you to where you are right now, all you do is buy a few months' time. So we can bail out the, the Spanish banking system. We can provide some, some funding for the Spanish banking system so that the Spanish banks can keep buying the Spanish government's debt and the Greek government's debt and everybody else's government's debt, which is what they're doing with the money. Um, but they're still going to be in the same position that they are today three or four months down the road, three or four months down the road. That's all you're buying with these big bailouts. The problem in Europe is that Greece, Italy, Spain, Portugal, not so much Ireland anymore, but those four countries fundamentally are uncompetitive with the other nations in the EU. Their labor costs are too, too high. Their governments are too bloated. And on top of that, the way that their societies view the work-leisure trade-off, this is an economic concept. And you learn this in labor economics or our introduction economics. Some people value work, and Germans as a culture value work. I mean, they, they love to work. I mean, that's where they get a lot of their joy in life. And so 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, that doesn't, that's not bad at all. That's just the norm. Work until you're 85 or 95, like my Uncle Kurt. Um, you know, that, that's, that's not unusual in Germany. In Southern Europe, though, you know, you've got the Mediterranean. I mean, if you were staring out at the Baltic or the North Sea or something, why not work? I mean, but, you know, it's, but, you know, you're staring out at the Mediterranean. I mean, clothing optional, beaches and cafes and, you know, work doesn't seem like such a good option then. Well, the arithmetic of that is that if somebody works 40 hours a week for 10 years and somebody works 30 hours a week for 10 years, the person that worked 40 is probably going to be more proficient at their job. They're going to be more productive. And pay is highly correlated with productivity. And then if you magnify that over a society, well, the northern, society, the northern part of Europe, they're going, to be, they're going to be wealthier. They're going to be able to afford a, a larger social safety net than the south is. And, and I tell this story to people, and I say, well, Mark, that's no different than the United States. I mean, how about Florida versus New York or or Mississippi, and I was like going to say, well, you know what? I said, you're right there. But I said, the United States, there are differences in the United States. But our differences, while they seem great to us, I said, I'll give you a little reality here. The difference between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, you know, how big is that difference? I said, if you're comparing it to between the difference between the Greeks and the Germans, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney look like twins. I mean, they could, have been, they could have been born from the same, same mother, same day, same place, compared to a Greek and a German. It's sort of like Barack and Obama and Mitt Romney are right here. The Greeks and the Germans are like right there. there there's such a wide difference between the cultures of these, of these countries. If they really wanted to make the euro work, what they need to do, they need to start off with something simple, like a single language. Now, it couldn't be French or German or Greek or Spanish or Italian, it would need to be Euro. You need to, everybody needs to learn a new language. Start there first. Then start a culture where you have the same national holidays and, and start there. And then also have one, one Olympic team, a European Olympic team, and one soccer team. You know, they were worried that if they didn't start a Euro, if they didn't create this single currency, that they would have a war. Um, boy, if they tried to have one soccer team, that'd be a war, I think. But it's... Um, but, but the euro as a currency is probably not going to work, but breaking it up also is not feasible right now. Um, there are a lot of estimates have been done that if Greece were to leave the euro, it would inflict about $1 trillion in cost on the rest of the world. Um, and that would be in a in fairly short order. So it would put Europe in a deep recession, and Europe's in a mild recession now, and probably pull the U.S. into a, a recession, which I mean, may happen anyway. If the euro fell apart, the cost would be, you know, easily twice that. And 
And I, I don't say that that's not likely to happen because I think if Greece were to leave the euro next week, which I don't expect to happen, but say it happened next week or next year, the day after that happens, interest rates in Italy and Spain would spike to, you know, 10 to 20 percent, and they would be forced to leave the euro, and and then you'd see the whole thing fall apart in, in pretty quick order. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I think that what's going to happen is the powers that be, the European Union, the European Central Bank, the European Financial Stability Facility, all these things are, are going to, to manage the crisis so that we bumble along from, 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 from crisis to a little bit of stability to back to crisis. And, and as a result, the fog that's hanging over the global economy doesn't really lift. And, you know, you can drive in the fog. You just can't drive that fast. And it really condemns us to kind of 2% growth. Well, you know, I've hit Europe pretty hard. And I like Europe. I mean, I love to go there. I got stuck in Paris a couple of years ago when the volcano went up and erupted in, in Iceland. And, and it kind of changed my whole attitude on Parisians. I mean, I actually, actually said, I kind of like Paris. You know, it's kind of nice. So, I, you know, and I under, now I understand why everything's so expensive there. But in any event... We have our own problems here in the U.S. I mean, we haven't made a whole lot of progress at reducing our budget deficit um, or getting it onto some sort of sustainable path. And we've got this thing called the fiscal cliff. Now, the fiscal cliff, I mean, I, I mean, it, it's really popular to talk about it now, uh, is the notion that the tax cuts that were the, the Bush tax cuts, which, are, which, were, which were extended under President Obama, um, on dividends and capital gains, the alternative to minimum tax fix, the lower marginal tax rate, um, they, they all expire at the end of this year. We also have the temporary 2% reduction in the Social Security tax. It expires at the end of this year. We have the sequester. We were supposed to get an agreement by, uh, between the Republicans and Democrats to cut the budget deficit over the next 10 years. They couldn't come to an agreement. So they said, oh, we're going to cut $1.2 trillion over the next 10 years. And we're um, getting this year. And then we have the new health care law, which kicks in. Well, the health care law, that's the only part that, 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 that will happen, assuming the Supreme Court doesn't throw the whole thing out. I have no idea. I mean, I have no insights in the Supreme Court. But if the Supreme Court throws it out, then, then that tax increase will not take place. But if the Supreme Court upholds it, then that tax increase, that 3.8 percentage point tax increase, will take hold. If the um, – on investment earnings – if the Supreme Court does not um, – if the Supreme Court kicks it out, then the tax doesn't take place, and the other ones. The other, but, but if the other ones did, if the other tax cuts expired, the AMT wasn't fixed, the sequester kicked in, then the, collectively that would subtract 4.6 percentage points off of economic growth. Well, we only got one point, well, two percent year to year. So two percent minus 4.6 means the economy contracts in 2013, and that we go into recession in 2013. And that's generally the, the consensus view. If that was to happen, that's the congressional budget forecast. But our belief and the belief of most people who watch this are that none of that's going to happen, that um, Congress will uh, probably in the lame duck session say, you know what, we can't fix this in four weeks. So what we're going to do is we're going to pass a one-year ex extension uh, and we're going to extend the dividends and capital gains rates through 2013 with the idea that, that it's going to be fixed, that Congress is going to, the new Congress is going to address it. Uh, we'll, we, um, I don't know that they'll do an AMT fix because it, it, the AMT, that tax is not in place now, so they probably just let that, that lapse. Um, the 2% percentage point reduction in Social Security taxes, they will likely extend that too. And the reason why is that when you look at real after-tax income per person in the United States, it hasn't grown at all over the last two years. It's actually down slightly from where it was a year ago. When you look at consumers' expectations, uh, the, the University of Michigan does a survey of 50,000 households each month, and they say, how much do you expect your income to rise over the next 12 months? Well, ever since the recession, it's been stuck at, at less than 1%. So most Americans believe that their income is going to rise less than 1%, and then when we look at the actual data, well, it hasn't, it, it hasn't risen 1%. So not only, not only are, do they have low expectations, but those low expectations have not even been met. So, so I, I think that um, in that kind of scenario, they're going to extend 
that temporary tax. So I don't think we're going to fall over the physical cliff. But the uncertainty, the combined uncertainty about what's going to happen there, what's going to happen in Europe, is going to cause growth to slow in the second half of this year. Uh, we've been stuck at somewhere around 2% growth. We think that growth will be between one5 and 2 uh, There's likely to be a lot of talk about uh, whether or not the U.S. economy is sliding into, back into recession. I think we're going to hear a lot of that in the next few weeks. Uh, the numbers that we've gotten in the last few weeks are not encouraging. Uh, retail sales um, have fallen in two of the last three months, and actually in each of the last two months. Uh, industrial production, we got today, is fall- in the manufacturing sector, has fallen in two of the last three months. Uh, so we're, we're likely to see some very disappointing numbers, but I think, it's, I think it really adds up to slow growth, not a recession, at least not yet. On the flip side, I mean, the bad news, if it bleeds, it leads. That seems to be what people are talking about. On the, on the plus side, housing's looking a little bit better. And, and I think and I expect that to continue. Now, one way that we see the uncertainty is in the, uh, the 10-year Treasury. And when I left this morning, it was about 156. Now, everybody loves low interest rates. But um, when you think about uh, where's inflation right now, it's 2%. Um, so uh, and where's inflation expected to be over the next 10 years? Well, the Fed would hope it will average about 2% a year. 2% inflation, then why on earth would anybody want to buy a 1.5% 10-year treasury? Why, why is anybody signing up to lose money over the next 10 years? And uh, the reason why is that folks are clamoring for liquidity. They want safety and liquidity. Uh, a lot of that money's coming out of Europe. A lot of it's small investors. Um, but these are extremely low rates. We have the 10-year treasury or a proxy, a composite of it, because it, the, tenure, the treasury didn't always issue 10-year notes going all the way back to 1792. And at no time during that period have long-term interest rates been as low as they are today for an extended period of time, not during the War of 1812, not during the Great Depression of 1793 or 1773, for that matter, um, which is probably the one that's closest to the one that we're in, not 1893 and 1873. Um, That 1893 recession is... depression, I guess is what it was back then, was the, was the genesis for the, uh, for the Wizard of Oz. That's where the Wizard of Oz came out of, so it's kind of an interesting one. But uh, something comes out of every, everything bad. But we've never had rates this low. And it's the same is true in Germany, the same is true in the U.K. People are just clamoring for low rates. Well, I tell people to take advantage of that if they can I mean, if you, uh, you know, if you, if you are, I, I don't know how long they're going to be here. I can't believe that rates will be this low a year from now. And a lot of people come back to me and say, well, what about Japan? I mean, Japan, they're even lower than they are here, and they, and they kept going down. And Japan has some of the same problems that we do. Their debt to GDP is now uh, 200%. And uh, my answer to that is that uh, we're not Japan. Uh, the United States is an open economy. Japan doesn't have immigration. We have lots of immigration. Uh, we have the highest birth rate of any industrialized nation in the world, and we're relatively young. Um, so we're, we're not likely to go the way of Japan. I mean, so we have a built-in growth rate um, somewhere um, close to 2% just from demographics and without even getting much gain from productivity. So I, I don't think we're going to be Japan. So these rates can't exist for that long. But uh, I would try to take advantage of them as best you can. Uh, the other thing that I would point out is that today is June 15th. Traditionally, the financial markets become illiquid and highly volatile between the middle of June and the middle of August. And we got a lot of things that, that are going to trigger that. We gotta get, we're going to get the Greek vote, and then we're going to have a week where they're going to try to put a government together. And, and that is sort of like, I mean, you think about Greece. I mean, one of the things that we're going to be looking is to see how well the Nazi party does in Greece. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's, um, you know, hopefully they don't get more than 12% of the vote. And, um, and also, you know, the socialist and the anarchist and the communist and, and the new democracy, which are kind of as conservative as you get in Greece. And hopefully that enough sane people get elected that they can put a government together. Um, I mean, that's going to give us some volatility. Um, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of where Moody's and S&P put us on credit watch for a downgrade. Uh, I don't expect S&P to downgrade us further but I do think that Moody's will downgrade the U.S. US credit rating to match the S&P. And the reason why is that if you look at the criteria that they spelled out, what needed to happen in order for them not to downgrade the U.S., not only has it not happened, 
but we've gone the other direction, and the physical position of the United States is considerably worse than where it was beforehand. Before they do that downgrade, they will downgrade a number of financial institutions, um, and there's a lot of talk about that. There was a front-page article in the Wall Street Journal, I believe, on Monday dealing with that. Um, and I might add, you know, n- not a forecast, but we were the, the loan that says five of the six largest banks are likely to be downgraded. We were the only one not mentioned. I don't like to mention my competitors' names in a, in a negative light, but, but that was, uh, that was in, in Monday's Wall Street Journal. I can't vouch for that one way or the other, but, I, but, it, but it, it kind of backs up what I said. That would happen before they did the sovereign downgrade. Um, you know, all that's going to add to some volatility. And so I, a lot of times I talk about the economy, and people say, well, Vintner, this is all interesting. What does it mean to me? What it means for me is if I've got a deal, if you've got a deal that you're trying to get done, I'd try to expedite it. I'd try to get it buttoned down as soon as possible because we're going to get in the period of time where the markets are thin, they could become illiquid very quickly, and you could, you, you could lose out on something. You could lose out on that deal that you're trying to do. So I would try to expedite things and get it done. And then the other thing I do is try not to get freaked out, even though I've been pretty blunt in my assessment here. You know, I don't care what happens with the euro. Europe is still going to be there. It's still going to be Europe. Um, Most people are still going to go to work the next day. Um, I don't think this is going to to, to result in a recession here in the United States. It might, but even if it does, um, a lot of the downsides have been taken out here in the U.S. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be, it, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a repeat of what we went through in 2007 and 2008. In terms of short rates, when you look at, at where the Fed uh, believes we are, um, there's a belief out there, and, I, and I, it's not far off the mark, that the Fed is committed to keeping the funds rate um, unchanged at where it is, close to zero, through the middle of 2014. And most people at the Fed uh, believe that. Um, up until recently, there were 12 Federal Reserve Bank presidents and five Federal Reserve Bank governors. There were two vacancies, so there are 17 people that cast a vote, um, or I shouldn't say cast a vote, that, um, that issue a forecast. And they ask all 17, where do you think rates are going to be? When do you think the Fed will start raising rates? Three people said this year. Three people said next year. Seven said 2014. Four said 2015. So it's not unanimous. At the next meeting, we'll have two more because finally, after going through a crisis with a, with a short staff, the, the Fed has finally got a full staff. Uh, you look at where folks think rates are going to be, it's not unanimous. I mean, a lot of folks think they're going to be right where they are, right through 2014. But you've got a lot of folks that think the funds rate is going to be between two and two and a half um, by the end of 2014. So I think there's some upward risk to interest rates as, as the world calms down, as the fog clears. Rates are likely to go up. Over the long run, the 10-year Treasury, which is one and a half, should be somewhere around four and a half. And, um, and the federal funds rate should be, uh, actually, the long-term 10-year Treasury should be around five and a half, and the, and the federal funds rate should be about four and a half over the long run. I, I, don't, I don't know if that long run might be a, a real long time, but, but rates are, are much lower than they should be in normal times. Well, that kind of leads me to this next one. Um, I don't, has anybody in here read This Time is Different by uh, um, Ken Rogoff and Carmen Reinhart? Huh. Yeah, I'm not surprised. It's a hard book to read. <laughs> it's um, it's like reading uh, it's like reading uh, someone's PhD thesis, but not just someone's. The nerdiest guy in the room's PhD thesis. I mean, it's uh, it is hard to read. I I read it when we were stuck over there in 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 uh, in, uh, in Paris, and um, and it, it it was you know and, and it's funny because we were over there introducing the Wells Fargo name to our you know, to what was legacy Wachovia offices in in uh, in Europe. And uh, everywhere I went, they said, is Greece uh, going to default? Is Greece going to default? Is Greece going to default? And I said, no, no, they're not going to default. And they're not going to default. And then I read through um, the book, and the book is like a history of sovereign defaults. And I said, wow, Greece has defaulted more times than any country on earth. And uh, they probably are going to default. Uh, but it just depends on what the meaning of the word default is. But, um, but this work is similar to that in that um, – We've gone through this incredible financial crisis. Europe's going through a big financial crisis. And when you go through a financial crisis, economic recoveries take a longer time to get generated. It takes a long time to make up the lost ground. There are 87 countries that went through a financial crisis. The top line on here that says zero is the previous trend. So if you were to have taken GDP in, say, 2004, before we had the bubble and before we had the bust, 
and drawn a straight line and said, if we continue to grow at the current pace, you know, and now we've fallen well below that, how long would it take us to get back there? Well, the news is kind of sobering. The top of this chart is the best that a country has done. And so eight years out, the best that a country has done is they've gotten nowhere near their previous trend. The bottom is the worst. The red line is the average. And the blue line is the U.S., you know, what we've done so far. So we're doing a little bit less, we're doing a little bit poorer than average in terms of a recovery from a financial crisis. But not much. I mean, we're certainly in the ballpark or in the margin of error. And you see that dip toward the end meaning that you usually have another recession well before you recover from a financial crisis. It doesn't mean that we don't grow. It doesn't mean there's not opportunities. It just means that we don't grow all that fast and we don't get back to normal where unemployment is, uh, where jobs are abundant and consumer confidence is buoyant and people feel like the economy is doing well. We're probably not getting back there anytime soon. And my guess is not before the year 2022, 2023, that kind of time frame. It doesn't mean that we don't grow. It doesn't mean that things don't get better during that time period. But it would be a freak of history for us to get there sooner. I mean, it would, be, it would stand out so much, so far above anything that we've ever seen before in world history if the United States was to get back to its previous trend before 2022 or 2023. So it's something to think about. Well, you know, I, I say that people say, God, that guy's so depressing. Well, on the flip side of that, there are a couple areas of our economy that are doing incredibly well and have very good prospects, some of which aren't doing as well right now. But, but energy, energy exploration, I know that we, I guess the governor's going to sign the fracking bill today. I don't know that's going to do great things for North Carolina because it doesn't look like it's huge deposits of natural gas here. But we are the most energy-rich industrial nation in the world. That's, that's incredible. Natural gas is so much cheaper here than it is in China. We've got industry that's moving back here to take advantage of that inexpensive natural gas. We're going to be independent, energy independent, um, I should say oil independent, within five years. Within five years, we're going to produce all the oil we need. We're not going to import a drop of oil. We don't import any oil from the Middle East now. We, well, we do, but I mean, we don't need to. Um, it's all over the world market, but we don't import any now. So the, the energy business is, is, is taking advantage of all the new technologies that have been able to uncover oil, and, and I, I, that has a long way to go. That's going to be a very huge positive for us. And, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a negative for alternative energy either. I mean, and if, I was, if I was the, 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 um, the ruler of the world, I would make sure that we, uh, that we collected some taxes on, um, on uh, traditional energy sources and used them to fund, um, fund the development of alternative energy. I mean, it just make, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's kind of a sustainable path of development. So hopefully we'll move in that direction at some point. Um, another area that we're, that's booming is everything that's tied to the mobile Internet. And, and we're seeing that. I, I do a lot of work in real estate and regional economic analysis. I'm headed off to California in a couple of weeks. In California, parts of California, particularly the Bay Area, um, Hollywood, um, parts of the coast are booming right now. It's kind of a, a quiet boom because, you know, he's, oh, California's got a $15 billion budget deficit. They're always going to have a budget deficit when it, this time of the year when they're looking at the at budget season. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's small potatoes for California. I mean, it's, well, don't write that, but it's, uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, but that's, I mean, they do have some serious problems, but housing has turned in California and the technology sector is booming and, and we're seeing apartment rents are rising. Demand for office space has been increasing. Now the social networking thing does worry me. I mean, a couple of years ago we were, we, we posed the question, is there a social networking bubble? You know, it's, um, and, I, and I don't know, I, don't, I, I, know I, I posed that question, I don't have a chart on it, but we showed where the number of instant messages surpassed the number of emails. And, you know, judging by the 160 junk emails that I delete before I even get out of bed in the morning, I don't know how that's possible, but it's, um, but it, it is, um, somebody needs to, that's an opportunity for somebody in this room to develop a better filter. Because <laughs> uh, we get a bunch of junk. But, um, but the mobile Internet is growing, and, and, and the folks who, protect, protect, who, who create the content 
that goes on that. And, 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 and everyone realizes, just like with the development of the Internet, everybody had to have an have a Internet presence. Everybody has to have a, uh, a social networking presence. And, and that's still got a ways to go. And, and, and that's real. I think that it, it's, I, I feel pretty confident that that's, that's real. It's got a long ways to go. Uh, we're also seeing uh, two other areas where we're seeing a, a lot of gains are in, in healthcare, using new, new technologies to drive gains in healthcare. I like the, uh, the development that we've got in Kannapolis, uh, which is a lot of which is focused on nutrition. That's got a long way to go. That's such a, that's an industry so, so much in its infancy because uh, we're finding out um, how different environmental triggers uh, impact people with different uh, strains of RNA. And I can see a time where, where we're going to have to have, um, where Kellogg's going to have to develop a whole different, a whole variety of Pop-Tarts because uh, one might trigger diabetes in someone and one might not. And, uh, and, um, and given how litigious our society is, they're going to have to make sure that they have Pop-Tarts for everybody. And it's, um, so I think that, that, uh, that, that, that nutrition and, and life sciences have a, have, have our, our, our true growth area for us. It's an area that we've got some expertise in. And then lastly, agriculture, where, we are, where we're learning how to uh, produce so much more product on less land and, and just tremendous gains in productivity. And, 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 uh, and so we've, we've, got, we've got four areas that I think are, are really, really helping, really have a, a, a long ways to, uh, that, that are going to do well even in a slow-growing economy. Well, on this next slide is something that I wanted to talk about, and it's very pertinent for today. Uh, today, North Carolina's unemployment rate came out, and it was unchanged for the month of May. The U.S. unemployment rate, of course, rose during the month of May. And a lot of people were surprised by that. Uh, I was not. I'm not surprised by that at all. I've been, if you've seen me speak at all this year, you know, I've been calling for that to happen. I said the unemployment rate is going to rise um, uh, between April and September of this year because the drop that we saw from October through March was overstated. Now, this is a... You guys are a technically sophisticated audience. I'm going to go through this real quick. I'm going to go back to the start. Look at the very worst periods of the recession, the deepest drops in GDP. Fourth quarter of 2008, first quarter of 2009. All of the data that we get is seasonally adjusted. And what seasonally adjusted does is we know when Christmas happens, we know when Thanksgiving happens, we know when school starts and when it ends. And so we adjust for that. We, we, what we do is we look and say, well, what normally happens in October? What normally happens in December? What normally happens in December? And the way we do that is we look at the last seven years, and they, you know, they do some statistical techniques to that and look at the averages and say, and so after seasonally adjusted gain or decline is what is above and beyond uh, what typically happens. Well, because this recession was about two and a half times deeper than the typical recession, and the worst of it was in that October through March period, the employment data, the retail sales data, the consumer confidence data, whatever you want to grab, are all impacted by the depth of that recession. The employment data, they're now expecting less job growth to occur, a larger increase in the unemployment rate. So the employment numbers, they, the seasonals add to them, and it makes job growth look stronger. The strongest job growth that we've seen in the last year was in the three months ended in February, gain of 243,000 jobs. It was the strongest three-month gain since February of the prior year, which was 243,000 jobs. Really kind of quirky. Um, consumer confidence hit its all-time low in February of 2009 at 25. The two highest readings that we've seen since the recession ended, February of 2011 at 82, February of 2012, 81.6. It's fallen every month since. The unemployment rate, you look at it, it fell 1.6 percentage points last year when the economy only grew 1.6%. So, I mean, it, it's absurd. I mean, it would be like we had a productivity of minus 10% or something. It doesn't make any sense. Well, one thing about seasonal adjustment is that Seasonal adjustment has to equal zero over a 12-month period of time. So what I've done here is I take the unemployment rate on a not seasonally adjusted basis, that's the bold line, and the seasonally adjusted unemployment rate is the thin line. And you can see that back in 2010, in, in that, in that in October, October 2009 through March of 2010, the thin line breaks below the bold line, the seasonally adjusted unemployment rate comes back down, and then from April through September it rises back up to the 12-month moving average. 
2011 was even a bigger drop because the economy was stronger in 2011 than it was in 2010. And in 2012, the economy was even stronger during that period, believe it or not. And uh, it's an even bigger gap, but it's likely to rise back up to that 12-month moving average because you know, all magic comes with a price, as one of my kids' favorite shows says. And, um, and, and that um, we're going to see the unemployment rate come back up. I believe it's going to meet the, the 12-month moving average at 8.4% in August of this year. It may be a little bit higher than that if the economy slows more than that. But, um, you know, I say that and people say, oh, what's that going to mean for the election? I said, not a daggone thing. Because um, as much as I pay attention to the unemployment rate, and, and many of you probably pay attention to the unemployment rate, most people would, could tell me more about what happened on Judge Judy yesterday than they can tell me about the unemployment rate. I mean, as, as far as voters are concerned, the only unemployment rate that matters to them is their own unemployment rate, which is going to be zero or 100 percent. And so, um, so, you know, they, they do not vote on what the official unemployment rate is. There's never been anything shown on that. Uh, I'm going to speed this up so I, can get, so I make sure that I have time for questions and I, I talk about housing and then talk about North Carolina a little bit. Now, I mentioned that one thing that makes me feel better about the economy is that the housing market has gone from being a drag on the economy to being a slight positive, and it is a slight positive. Home prices have probably bottomed. New construction certainly bottomed, and there's a lot of excitement about building apartments, particularly in, in Raleigh and Charlotte. Uh, because that's where we're seeing strong job growth. We're seeing a lot of young people move to those areas. And the demand for apartments has been strong. Rents have been rising. That's likely to continue. The single-family market's just getting a little bit better. Nationally, we're expecting it to go about up, up about 10%, rise about 10% this year. The last three years were the worst three years uh, for housing starts in history. Um, next year's is only going to be a little bit better than that. Builders, um, I mean, there's still a lot of problems with people getting credit. That's even true for the apartment guys, where the demand's real strong. Um, folks have got a lot of plans to build stuff, but it's taken them a, lot, a, a long time to lock up their money. Um, and, and I don't expect that to, to improve all that much. Uh, well, this gives me a, a way that I can brag about ourselves a little bit and also tell you what the problem is. Uh, in the first three months of this year, Wells Fargo Mortgage uh, got about, provided about 40% of all home mortgages in the United States. We did more mortgages. We originated more mortgages than the next eight largest companies combined. Now, last I checked, Bank of America was still making mortgages. J.P. Morgan still making mortgages. Citibank still. I mean, those are some big companies. Now, we do a good job. We're a well-capitalized bank, and I, you know, I, I've got, you know, plenty of mortgages from our bank. I, I, I think they do a great job. So part of it is they're doing a great job, but that doesn't explain all of it. Part of it is that we've got a lot of folks in the financial sector that are still licking their wounds, still rebuilding their balance sheets, and they're not lending all that aggressively. Until that changes, we're not going to see the housing recovery pick up all that much. So it's going to be a very gradual recovery there. On top of that, there's one really big question that's hanging out there over the market. What are we going to do with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? And almost every mortgage that's originated today is sold to Fannie and Freddie. We know they're going to be shut down. We just don't know when and how that's going to be done. But we absolutely know they're going to be shut down. Barack Obama wants to shut them down, and Mitt Romney wants to shut them down. And I don't think Ralph Nader's even going to run. So it's, um, you know, Roseanne Barr's running. I don't know. <laughs> you know, she might want to keep them up. But I, I mentioned housing prices have bottomed. Virtually every measure of home prices is showing that prices are rising. In fact, inventories of, of home, the inventory of, of homes for sale outside of foreclosures and short sales has dropped substantially, about 30% over the last year. And as a result, um, folks that put their homes up for sale are usually getting, they're getting bids above the asking price. It's not uncommon for that to happen. Problem is, is that when they go to, go to close on that deal, um, the appraisal comes in really low and they're not able to close. And uh, that's, that's a tricky situation. And the reason the appraisals are, so, are coming in so low is there's still a backlog of foreclosures and short sales and the appraiser's going, listen, if that thing, if that, if that, if that buyer winds up putting the, you know, not defaulting on that payment, and that home is sold before closure, it's going to sell just like any of those others at a really discounted price, and so they're having to factor that into their appraisal. So it's a it's a better picture, but we're still not totally out of the woods. Now, now looking at North Carolina's economy, um, this chart, the hundred percent would be when we get to the hundred percent, that would mean we've recovered all the jobs lost in the recession, and you can see that this recession, the job losses were the worst that we had seen in any recession. 
The next worst recession was 73-75, which was a transformational recession. I think any recession that you go through that is this deep is transformational. But in, in 1973, furniture, textiles, uh, tobacco, and, and apparel accounted for 25% of the state's economy. Today they account for less than 2%. So it's, it's, it's a remarkable transition that we've seen. Um, and they were basically, they peaked, employment peaked in 73. It's been declining pretty much ever since. Um, now, we did see some losses in traditional manufacturing. A lot of the losses that we had in this recession were in, um, were in construction and financial services. Uh, the recession we had in the previous one, a lot of them were actually in the tech sector. Uh, but virtually everything was impacted by this last recession. Uh, we're still uh, a little bit more than 5% below uh, where we were prior to the recession, um, and job growth in the last in the, in the last recovery was not all that great in North Carolina. Um, most of the improvement that we're seeing in job growth has been um, has been in the larger metropolitan areas. It's mostly been a, a, a Raleigh and Charlotte story, although Wilmington and Asheville are doing better. Uh, over the last year, when you look at the mix of jobs that are being added. The way you read this chart, the industries that are at the top are our largest employers, the ones at the bottom of our smallest. And every industry has been adding jobs uh, except construction and other services. Uh, information down at the bottom is a misnomer. Uh, what we call information is largely cable television, Internet service providers, newspapers and magazines, and um, and. Um, Telephone companies, wireline wire telecommunications has, has been very weak. It doesn't include software engineers. It doesn't include folks who work in life sciences. All those guys are in that middle group called professional and business services. Uh, when you look at the unemployment rate, as I mentioned, it was unchanged. Um, I guess we're at 9.4% in April or at 9.4% in May. It is trending down. We have the same issue that the nation does. And that the, the decline in the unemployment rate is a little bit has been a, is a little overstated from the October through March period, and so we're going to see a little bit of a bounce back. We may see it rise over the next few months, but things are improving. The empl employment is just trending up, and the unemployment uh, rate is coming down a little bit, and the number of unemployed is coming down. The lighter areas on here show you where unemployment is lowest in the state. It's mainly around the Triangle, a little bit around the Triad, and around Charlotte, and then over there toward Asheville, we've got lower unemployment rates as well. And in Watauga County, a couple of observations. If you have a college, I should say a university, a military base, or the hub of state government, it has generally uh, helped you hold down the unemployment rate because a lot of those guys have tenure. Um, and, um, and so those are some of the areas that are, that are doing relatively well. Um, Charlotte's recovered fairly well. The, um, uh, this, these bubble charts here show you... Um, uh, where job growth is the strongest in the, uh, in, in, in the state. This is where we were a year ago. I don't know why it's missing all the names on it. Um, one of those bubbles is Charlotte and one of those bubbles is Raleigh. We want to be in that right-hand quadrant, right, right top quadrant, which means that we're growing on a year-to-year -year basis and over the last three months. Uh, this is where we are today. Uh, we have seen a couple areas decelerate, but Charlotte and Raleigh, Greensboro, uh, Winston-Salem are all up there in that top right-hand quadrant. We're adding... Um, jobs across most major industries. Uh, in the Charlotte area, the financial services sector has picked up, and banks, uh, banking employment is, is pretty close. Banking employment, not just financial services, but banking, uh, which is a component of it, is back up about where it was pre-recession. Um, I mean, in our own company, it's higher than it was pre-recession. So it's uh, so we, we have seen things encourage a little bit, and improve a little bit. In terms of the housing market in North Carolina, uh, Single-family construction's bottomed. It hasn't really improved much. We have seen a little bit of a pickup in apartments. Housing prices are still trending down, though. Um, we're not, we have not seen uh, as much of improvement. We were later going into the, the housing slump than the, uh, than the nation was, so it may take us a little bit longer to see the price improvement, although Raleigh and Charlotte are both seeing prices rise up a little bit. The last thing I have here is just a couple of, uh, a couple of things that are on our radar screen. I've mentioned many of them already. Number one is the European financial crisis. Um, we have made a little progress there. I, I had been saying that we had made no progress there. Uh, we've made a little progress there. I mean, I, I, um, in the report that I wrote, so when you look at it very critically, um, you, you, you uncover a few things. Um, there are some labor market reforms that are being put in place in Ireland and, and Greece and Italy um, and Spain. 
um, and they have resulted in a drop in unit labor costs in these countries, and that so some competitiveness is is improving. I um, I'm suspicious though. I do not think that it's as good as it looks because I think that what's happening is that we have a very deep recession, and your least productive workers are the ones that are being let go. So it's sort of like if I was teaching a class and the dean came in and said. Vittner, you could be doing a whole lot better if I got rid of those C, D, and F students and they just threw them out of my class. The class GPA would go up, and I think, I think that's what's happening. So I, I mean, I, but 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 I am encouraged that at least the reforms have been put in place. Uh, credit availability and financial reform. Dodd Frank puts about a trillion dollars in cost on the financial services se sector uh, of compliance cost. Yeah, trillion. That's a lot. That's a lot to overcome. Uh, credit availability, as I mentioned before, it's not coming back. There's a, there's a couple of – it's not coming back all that quickly. Uh, there's still got a lot of financial institutions that, are, that have got some healing in front of them. I'm not going to go through all of these. I'm just going to go through the, uh, the, the, this next one here, deleveraging. Um, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier. A lot of people think deleveraging is, um, is looking at, at debt income ratios and, and the saving rate and things like that, and they always look at households. Those numbers have gotten a little bit better, but mainly because the banks have charged off um, doubtful accounts. They have not got, they, they have gotten, haven't gotten better because people are paying down debt. Corporate America has done a good job at deleveraging. They've gotten their balance sheets in, in, in good order. They're, they're sitting on some cash. Households still have some work to do. And in terms of households, I think that households are coming to the realization. The Pew Research Center Institute did a study, and they, and they surveyed American households. And one of the legacies of this recession, and it's not just a, a legacy in thought, it's a reality, is that American households realize that they're going to earn less money over their lifetimes. Their permanent income is lower, is now lower than it was prior to the recession. And they're trying to figure out how to make their, their lifestyle fit that new reality. And that's one of the reasons that when you look at what's happening in the auto sector, who's doing best? Yeah, Mercedes and, and, and BMW, they're doing okay. The next best one, Hyundai. As people are saying, nah, I'm not buying the Toyota. I'm going to buy a, I'm going to, I'm going to go down and get a, get a Hyundai. Hyundai and Kia, they're tonning it. And who's doing best in retailing? Ah, some high retail, high end retailers are doing well, but who's really tonning it? Family Dollar, Dollar General. They're really tonning it. They're doing so well that Walmart's now going to mimic them and start and, and open a chain of stores just like them. I mean, so, so it is. So we're, we've, we, this deleverage has got a way to go. The other place that's made no progress is government. I was talking to a reporter on the way up here, and he's like, Mark, he goes, wouldn't we be doing better if state and local governments were hiring instead of laying people off? And I said, yeah, we would. I mean, we would also do better if the Martians would come down here and just give us lots of gold or something. You know, it's <laughs> like, um, you know, it would be, um, I mean, it, it just, you know, it's just not, it, I mean, it'd be nice, it's nice to wish for those things. But the problem is, is just like American households took on too much debt because they thought their incomes were going to rise faster than they are, governments took on too much debt. They built too many projects. They, 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 they promised health care and pension benefits that they can't, they can't, they can't uh, fulfill. And so now governments are having to deal with the reality that the tax base isn't as large as they thought it was going to be and it's not growing as fast as, it's going to, as they thought it was going to be that property values are going to take 20 years to get back up to where they were. And they're thinking, wow, i got to deal with that reality. And, and it was put off a couple years because the Stimulus Act provided some funding to cities and counties so they could keep teachers and police on the payrolls for a while. But once the stimulus dollars were gone, you had this big hole because <laughs> revenues hadn't come back. In fact, for, for local governments, there's a lag because property values hadn't been reassessed to those lower values yet, so the situation actually got worse. So I, I think deleveraging still has a ways to go. And that's one of the reasons when I showed you that chart, how long it takes for, to, for societies to recover from financial recessions or balance sheet recessions, it's a lot longer. That's, that's the reason why that deleveraging takes a long time to play out. So, so let me stop there. Um, didn't want to ruin your lunch. I don't know what you guys got to eat. But, uh, but let me stop there and throw it up for some questions. Yes. So I go out occasionally to the OCC website, Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, and there's a derivatives report out there. And I went out and looked, 
at, uh, at the end of 2008, there were like $200 trillion worth of notional value derivatives in the top five banks in the country. <clears throat> so I went out uh, every quarter or so after that to keep checking on it. And I checked two quarters ago, and it had increased to $240 trillion of notional value derivatives in the top five banks in the country. And I am <clears> – <throat> no one is talking about this this component of the financial system and the banking system, but it seems like there's still a lot of fear in the banking system. Anytime it gets shaky overseas or anywhere else, interbank lending contracts, and that is, that is working against our economic recovery. But I don't hear anybody talking about that, uh, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, most derivatives, and, I, and the problem is, is that when you're talking $240 trillion and you say most, you know, if it was $239 trillion were good and $1 trillion were bad, it would still wreck the system, you know. So it's, it's – um, but most derivatives are – that notional value means that there's – is that there's an even trade. So there's $120 trillion on one side, and, and it's sort of like, um, you know, the way that works is, is you flip a coin, there's a two-sided coin – Heads that side lose, wins, this side loses, but it's it's perfectly balanced. They're being perfectly balanced, so there's there's someone on the other end. The problem with the derivatives, though, the problem with the derivatives market, is what happened with AIG, and and that if you have someone, if you have where you have counterparty risk, where which is supposed to be taken into account and it's supposed to be collateralized as well, but if you have a counterparty that fails and they can't make good on their Commitment, then, then maybe, you know, maybe there's uh, there's a lot more risk stacked on one side or the other, and that's one of the risks that's in Europe right now, because I, there's a big argument to be made: is does it make sense to write credit default swaps on a country? Because if any country can't make do on its debts, then uh, already major any developed country like like Greece, for example, which is relatively small. It's got an economy about the size of Atlanta. <clears throat> if they can't make due on their debts, and, it, and it's going to throw um, – it, it's, it, its impact on the credit default swap and on the banking system in Europe, it's going to have this huge fallout. And um, and you never know where it's going to stop. You don't know where, the, where that firewall is, and that's what they're trying to, to, to build. You don't know where you – know, does it come back to us that some bank in Europe fail that's got a swap arrangement with some bank in the U.S.? <clears throat> but but other than ending other other than describing it that way, I don't know how else to say it. I, I don't. I, I'm I'm not troubled by by the over by the by the size because I do know that it's that it, it's largely offset by a by a corresponding trade. Well, they're definitely talking about it. I, I just don't know that I don't know that there's a, a viable alternative to the system that we have right now. There may be at some point. I just don't, I just don't know what that would be. I mean, most most derivatives are are fairly in, innocuous. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I remember I got a woman. She asked me, "How do I know if there are derivatives in my mutual fund?" And I said, "Well, your mutual fund is a derivative." I said, "Any financial asset that derives its value from another from other assets." Is a derivative, and so it is a, uh, and so um, preferred stock is a derivative, um, and uh, and so it is, and then you know any type of futures contract on corn or wheat or uh, and, and certainly on interest rates, which is what uh, interest rates or currencies are, uh, are are derivatives, and then credit default swaps are are, are another part of it. And so it is, I, 
I don't know that um, I don't know that there's a, a we can't just do away with them. Um, I think it's you know the answers and and better reporting and better regulation and better controls and hopefully um, we don't get to the point that where we were last time and I, I you know there's no reason that we have to get to that point again. Um, but um, but I, I don't have I don't know I don't know what an alternative would be. Yes. I have a, um, an election-related question. It's, we're sort of in the height of political season here and, and a lot of crazy things happening out there. When something uh, good happens uh, statistically uh, in some of the things that you put in your graphs up there, then the Obama and his folks won't take credit for it. When something bad happens, the Romney crowd says, oh, no, 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 this is real, really terrible, and vice versa, and that's going to go on and on until November. If there's a um, the, the guy on the street, I think, sees what's happening and, and takes into consideration some of the many negative things that's happening both here and around the world, and they say, you know what, if there's ever an opportunity that I can have an impact on those graphs that you're sharing up there, it's in November when I go to the ballot box. My question for you is, is that really at the end of the day, does it make any difference at all? I mean, generally speaking, a lot of the things that you were talking about there, it's, it's really the election, it's just going to happen. It, it, it does make a difference. Um, there, are, there are key differences. I mean, our differences in the United States between Republicans and Democrats aren't as stark as between the anarchists and the Nazis in Greece and things like that. Or, you know, they have lots of crazy parties over there. But um, in Europe, it's, you know, our, our, our parties, are, our, our differences are probably small compared to those. But they are, they are, they are big differences. Uh, one area where um, where I think you would see a, a significant, almost immediate change, um, if, if um, Romney were to win um, the presidency, is in the area of regulation. Um, the uh, if you look at the number of EEOC violations and divide it uh, and divide the number of people working or the number by the number of uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission violations you would see that they began to spike in 2007 and, and, have, and have really risen relative to the population or the workforce uh, over the last five years. Now, I mean, you can, I mean, it's not, you know, it's two different presidential terms there. Uh, but I think that that would change. Uh, I think that, the, um, that, that that's, that's one area that you would see change um, with a change of administrations is that uh, the regulatory environment would be less antagonistic toward business than it is today. Um, in terms of tax policy, I think that there's, uh, there's a fundamental difference between, uh, between the two candidates. Uh, one, one candidate um, is, um, well, Obama is, is more interested in, in, um, in equity in, in terms of, uh, of trying to, 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 to move to more, a more, uh, more, more equitable society with the tax code. Whereas, whereas Romney is, is more interested in using the tax code to promote growth. And, you know, how you view one or the other is, how, you know, probably which side you'll vote for. I mean, there, there are good arguments between the two, but there are, there are key differences in the way that, that each candidate sees. I think that there is a, a clear choice in this election. I think that, there, I think that there, there typically is a clear choice. But when it comes down to what are those numbers are going to look, how different they're going to look, you know, I... I, I don't know that they're going to look that much different you know, at the end of the day um, under one than the other. I, I, I would think that um, uh, I, I would give Romney a slight edge that the numbers may look a little bit better under his presidency than they would under, under Obama's. Um, and, uh, but, but um, you know, so if we're saying that growth is going to be 2%, maybe it'll be 22 I mean, it's not going to be that much difference. <laughs> not that much different. Yes. Uh, Mark, when do you see, uh, going out in a few years, the, the, the turrets turning on the U.S. in terms of our fiscal problems? And, you know, I, I, Bill Gross got ahead of that and got burned last year. Is that, you know, we're only paying, a, as you said, you know, 1.5% on our 10-year bonds. I mean, when does it, when does it become a problem? 
Yeah, that's a good question. And, and I might add on that last one that, that, that my bias on that, that's my own personal bias because I think that, I think that um, you know, just the way that I've learned economics. So let's live like that. And I, I give you another personal bias on this one because no one really knows. I mean, I, I think that when, when people look around at, at the global economy right now, um, and we said this about debt, but I think it's true about the economy as well, um, we're the cleanest, dirty shirt in the closet. You know, we, um, you know, it's not, um, it's certainly not a pretty shirt, but it's uh, better than the others. I mean, you look around China's economy, Europe's economy is in recession. Strongest economy is Germany. And if I showed you the charts on Germany, you would, you would, you would say, oh, God, that's not good because they're all, like, they're all approaching the zero line. Um, China, the United States exports 15% of its economy. Um, China's 30%. Uh, their biggest customer is Europe. Our biggest customer is Europe. Uh, makes up about 20% of our exports. So China's economy has slowed. And we knew China's economy was going to slow. It had been growing about you know, 10%. Now they were saying 8 Now they're saying less than 7 uh, Brazil's economy has slowed because they sell a lot of stuff to China. Brazil grew 1.4% last year, actually less than the U.S., which grew 1.6%. Um, so in some ways... We're benefiting from the rest of the world's troubles because, you know, money's coming in here because we look more stable. And I might add that within the United States, the southeast United States, which tends to grow one and a half times faster than the U.S. on average, looks even better than that. And, um, and so, you know, people are saying, gosh, you know, I, if I want some growth and I want some stability, southeast U.S. is where I want to be. So that's putting off our day of reckoning somewhat. The Congressional Budget Office came out with their long-term projections for the budget deficit last week. And if the, the fiscal, if we were to go off the fiscal cliff and the taxes were to increase, our budget, pressure, our budget situation, you know, assuming that we, I mean, the CBO can't assume that we have the recession that they say that we would probably go in if we went off the fiscal cliff, but it has our budget situation improving. But if we did nothing or did what I think we're going to do in terms of extending it, then in 20 years or 25 years, uh, our budget deficit, our debt as a share of GDP would be over 200 percent. Our, our debt as a share of GDP right now is about 73 percent. When it gets over, and I, I might add, that's the public debt. Uh, the Federal Reserve is a big holder of our debt, and the Social Security system is a big holder of our debt. But that that just goes, that just turns into money and uh, inflation. So we pay for that a different way. Uh, the Fed monetizes that debt, turns into high-powered money. So it's only the public debt that we have to worry about. But when the public debt gets over 90% of GDP, it gets very hard for the economy to grow faster than a 2%, faster than 2% um, for any period of time, you know, more than a quarter or two. And so once your deficit gets beyond 90% of GDP, arithmetically, you're, you're you're condemned to, to, to a slow growth for the rest of your existence. And, um, and so, you know, that's, that's kind of the threat that we face. I don't know that we're going to see a buyer strike that people are going to say, ah, oh, we're just not going to buy any more of this debt because the Federal Reserve will just keep buying it. But I think that's what, that's what we're up against. I mean, uh, are we going to, uh, are we going to, um, are we going to allow our country to commit suicide? I mean, that's, um, you know, economic suicide. I mean, that is, that's, that's, that's to me is the, uh, is, is the big threat from the deficit. I don't know that, that the markets are going to turn on us. Uh, if, if they were to turn on us, so turn their turrets on it, as you said, it would be after Europe, you know, after Europe fixed their problems. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, the way that, that capitalism or free markets work is that, um, is that they always attack the weakest link. The weakest link is, is Greece right now. But if Greece was to fail... And, you know, they got kicked out of the euro, and they got the drachma, and they depreciated, and, and the currency depreciated. Well, then they would go, and they would attack the next weakest link, which would probably be Spain. And then it might be Italy. And then ultimately, I think it would go all the way to France. And, uh, you know, so it would and, – and, and after all that was done, then it might turn here to the United States. But I don't think that, that we're going to go through that, actually. So I think that, that the greater risk is that we, we don't that, – that we don't – our, our seat isn't in the fire. We don't have our, our feet in the fire, I should say. And, um, 
and we we put off dealing with the budget deficit, and it gets to the point that it doesn't work. Now, if we were to go, if we were to uh, go off the fiscal cliff and make that progress at uh, at uh, reducing the deficit, um, spending on everything other than health care, um, Social Security, and interest on the debt would drop to the lowest share of GDP in the history of the country. Now, I don't know that, that we could do that. I mean, national defense, too, in, in 25 years. And... Um, and so I, I don't know that I don't know that that's a solution either. So um, hopefully uh, we can we can get that uh, get that done. And you can read that. It's at cbo.gov. That's the the website to get their report. And it's um, it came out I believe on the sixth of of June. And do yourself a favor and just read the summary. You don't need to read the whole daggone thing. It's only about six pages. Um, you're not going to get any good information from the rest of it. You know, it's just, um, but you can also, if you're on the web by that time, you can go look at, at wellsfargo.com slash economics and, and pull up this thing about the fog because it's, uh, it's kind of a neat, neat report and, and take a look at that. So I want to stop right there, and uh, it's 1 o'clock. I'm up against my deadline, um, but I can stick around afterward, and if anybody's got any questions, feel free to come up and talk to me, and uh, I'll be happy to try to answer them. Thank you very much.